question for you. What's your why? What's your why? In other words, why do you live the way you do? Now you might say, I'm driven by a goal that determines how I live right now. Or maybe uh, I have responsibilities in life that dictate all my priorities. That's why. Or maybe it would be something like I suffer with a disease or a disability that dominates my life. That's why I live the way I do. Maybe some of you would say, you know, I just go with the flow. (laughs) I don't really have a why. I just go with the flow. Why do you live the way you do? Your answer might be based on something in the past, something in the present, or something in the future. But I have a feeling that if you were to dig a little bit, you would be able to figure out why you live the way you do. We all have a fundamental why. For the past three Sundays, we've been studying Titus chapter 2. And Paul has been giving instructions to the various members of the church, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and bond servants on how to live out the faith. He's been giving instructions on how to live out the faith. But today, he tells us why. Paul gives the reason, the basis for the Christian life. In a sentence, here's the reason Christians live the way they do. Because history has been defined by two appearances of Jesus Christ. Appearance number one. The past appearance of God's grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And appearance number two, the future appearance of God's glory at the return of Christ. Christians are those people who have come to believe The grace of God in Christ and the glory of God in Christ and live in between those history defining appearances. So as we study the scripture this morning, my prayer is that you will live in between the grace of God and the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles, please. Turn to Titus chapter 2. This morning our sermon text is verses 11 through 14. But we're going to leave the treasures of verse 14 for next week. Titus 2, 11 
through 14, focusing on 11 through 13 this week, 14 next week. Let's read our sermon text. Friends, this is God's word. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That ends the reading of God's word for today. And all God's people said, Amen. What good words. Christians live the way they do because of two history-defining appearances of Jesus Christ. That's the basis for this sermon that comes from this text. Christians live the way they do based on and because of two history-defining, no mere small things, but history-defining appearances of Jesus Christ. The first appearance, look at verse 11. Verse 11, the beginning of our text, the first appearance is the past appearance of God's grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you see? For the grace of God has appeared. It has already appeared. Then, the second appearance, verse 13 Appearance number two, the future appearance, not of God's grace, but look there in verse 13 at the end of our sermon text for today. God's glory at the return of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, the future appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, those two appearances change everything, everything. Appearance number one. It's the past appearance of God's grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. As we look at that, we can see what has appeared. It doesn't say anything about Jesus. It says the grace of God has appeared. What's grace? Grace is the same word as gift. It's God's favor as a gift. It's given, not earned. It's bestowed, not deserved. John Stott says grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. 
And why is it such a big deal that this grace of God has appeared there in verse 11? Because, look, it brings salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared with power to save people. Now, the word appeared is really significant in this text. You can see that just in the short section of verse 11 through 13, the word appeared happens twice. It appears twice. There are two appearings. The grace of God appears and then the glory of God appears. And what Paul is doing here is he is kind of snatching out of the whole culture of the Roman Empire. This word appears, which is an epiphany. And it's usually associated with the glorious arrival of the emperor or the arrival of one of the uh, Roman hero gods. So he's writing to Titus, who has been assigned to the island of Crete. And the, uh, the god story most embedded in the Cretan culture was the story of the Roman god Zeus. The Cretans claim that Zeus was born on Crete. That it was on Crete that Zeus became a god because of his incredible acts of goodness toward humanity. So Cretan religious theology goes something like this. Man, Zeus, becomes God by doing good things to humanity. Paul takes the appearance of Zeus or the emperor and he turns that upside down. And instead of Cretan theology, man becomes God. Paul shows gospel theology that God has appeared to man in a divine display of power to rescue man from his terrible situation. Jeff Thomas says grace, the grace of God appearing, grace is omnipotence acting redemptively. Another scholar says the essence of the doctrine of grace is that God is for us. Isn't that grace? God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who created you and gave you the very breath that you breathe. God is for you. That's grace. You can see there in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared with a divine display of power to help us. Specifically, has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Well, the word salvation means to be saved or rescued from something, and I think that begs three questions that we're going to explore more next week. First of all, brings salvation from what? What does the grace of God bring salvation from? 
Well, look at verse 14, because verse 14 describes the salvation that we have in the grace of God more specifically. We'll explore that next week. But the words Paul uses to describe salvation presuppose that every single human being is in a terrible situation, like a dire situation. Look at verse 14. He uses the word redeem. Now, redeem is not just a religious word. Redeem presupposes that someone is in bondage, in slavery, or in prison, and has to be bought out because they have no way to free themselves. So Paul's saying mankind, all of us, are in bondage to sin and we cannot deliver ourselves from it, but God does by his grace. Look there in verse 14 again. Paul uses the word purify. Don't just think in religious terms, but if we have to be purified, what does that presuppose about us? That we are impure, dirty, and defiled. And when it comes to the context of God, that means we are unfit to be in the presence of God. We are banished from the presence of God and separated from him. So friends, it, Paul says that we are in a terrible, dire situation and we have no ability to to help ourselves, but the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is good news. If, if, if you see yourselves like God sees you, If you don't see yourself as enslaved to sin and defiled before God, then you see no need for a Savior to rescue you from anything. In fact, I suggested that someone could be offended if if they were told that uh, you're enslaved, you're addicted to sin, and you're not worthy to be in the presence of God. The message of grace is offensive to those who don't see their need. And it's good news to those who do. Martin Luther said, a man must completely despair of himself in order to become fit to obtain the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared Bringing salvation. Salvation from what? From our dire, condemned, dirty, sinful condition before God. Question number two. Bringing salvation for whom? Look at the end of verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Man, is that good news. For all people. Every kind of person, people in Israel, people on Crete, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, older, younger, even the lowest members of society, the bond slaves and servants. God's grace has appeared. And it brings salvation for every kind of person. Question number three, how? Well, this is what we'll explore next week. It brings salvation how? 
Well, look there at verse 13 and 14. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. How? Through our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us. To redeem us from all lawlessness. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are zealous of good works. Here's God's grace. To sinners. In a dire situation who are hopeless and helpless. Instead of being condemned. Like you and I deserve. Jesus sacrificed himself to redeem us, buy us out of our bondage to sin and purify us, make us clean so that we can be his people and enjoy the presence of God again. That's the gospel of the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ, friends. And that changes everything. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're good enough on your own? Or do you believe that you're in a dire situation and desperately need to be rescued by a Savior? Here's the good news. The grace of God has already appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for every kind of person. Jesus is the grace of God incarnate. Look at John chapter one, John chapter one, just for a moment. This will likely be the only text other than our sermon text that we turn to. John chapter 1 talks about the unique historical appearance of Jesus Christ as the manifestation of the grace of God. Jesus Christ is not just another man. He's God. And God became a man. Jesus of Nazareth. Unique historical, real appearance of God among us. John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So you can see that the Word is God, the creator, God. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. And what does that glory look like? Full of what? Grace. And truth. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness. 
We have all received what? Grace. Not just grace, but grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people in the unique historical appearance of Jesus Christ. That's what Alan read for us this morning from 2 Timothy 1.9. The grace of God has been manifest now through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, who can abolish death and bring immortality? Only God can do that. Friends, the grace of God has appeared, and it brings salvation for those who see it, for those who believe it, for those who see their need and see the answer in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my riches, but my need. We're born with our backs toward God and heaven and our faces toward sin and hell until grace comes and turns us around. Philip Henry. That's appearance number one. Aren't you glad for that appearance of the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ? It changes everything, but that's not the whole story. There's another appearance, another epiphany. The divine intervention with the intention to save man from our terrible situation. Appearance number two is at the end of our sermon text, verse 13. Waiting in the future for our, look at these words, blessed hope. The appearing of the glory. The next thing is the appearing, not of the grace, but of the glory of our God. Look what he says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the future, appearance number two is God's glory, not at the first coming incarnation of Christ, but at the second coming, the exaltation of Christ. The appearing of the glory of God is the future appearing of Jesus when he returns to set up his kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. The Bible speaks about this many times. For example, Matthew chapter 24, then will appear, same word, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then 
All the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. And in chapter 25, Matthew says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The appearing of God's glory is the future appearing of Jesus Christ when he comes to establish his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. First Corinthians chapter 15 says it this way. I tell you, brothers. Flesh and blood. Cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And so Paul says, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. The essence of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the two history defining appearances. First, the grace of God in Christ. Second, the glory of God in Christ. And the point of this text is this. The Christian life for older and younger men, older and younger women, and employees or slaves of every kind. The Christian life is living in between the grace and the glory of God in Christ. These are not different. Jonathan Edwards explains. Grace is glory begun. And glory is grace perfected. What we understand then between these two, 11 and 13, is verse 12. 
that Christians live in between these two gospel realities entirely by God's grace. It's God's grace that started it. And it's God's grace that will finish it. We do not live in the power of our flesh. But we live entirely by the grace of God. Look at verse 12. The grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. Then what? Verse 12. Training us. Training us to do three things. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Number two. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Number three. Waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who redeems and purifies us by his gracious sacrifice. Everything, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Everything is of grace in the Christian life from the very beginning to the very end. Were it not for the grace of God, there would be no such thing as a Christian. J.I. Packer. This one word, grace, contains within itself the whole of New Testament theology. So notice here in verse 12. That the grace of God that brings salvation does not leave us to follow Jesus under our own power. The grace of God brings salvation and then it's that same grace that trains us. The word trains means instructs us, educates us. So the grace of God then takes us by the hand like a teacher And the grace of God teaches us three things specifically about what it looks like to live in between the first and second coming of Jesus. Number one, Christian, I can't tell you how important this is for your Sunday afternoon and your Thursday morning. Number one, the grace of God trains Christians to renounce ungodliness. To renounce something is to say no, to deny it, to turn your back on it, to give it up. What are we to renounce? The grace of God that saved us teaches us to say no to, look there, ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness is anything that is apart from God. 
Uh, the word actually is associated with worshiping idols. So instead of worshiping God, this is the negative of worshiping anything that's associated or not associated with God, like idolatry, being involved in wickedness. The theological dictionary of the New Testament says, quote, ungodliness are things that are unworthy of God. So the grace of God teaches us to say no to things that are unworthy of God. In your life, what are the, some of the things that you have a natural tendency toward, but that the grace of God is teaching you to say no to because it's not worthy of God? Oh, I can think of big things, obvious things, and then I can think of some small, really gray kinds of things in my own life. But I sense the Holy Spirit, the grace of Christ inside of me that is teaching me to say no to some things that are not worthy of the God who saved me. Secondly, it it teaches us to say no to worldly passions. Worldly passions, the word passion is the same word for desire or appetite. So it's any desires that are associated with this world. And, and it's not just talking about, you know, the car dealership next door. It's, it's talking about this world as it is outside of Eden, the world that's cursed by sin. So our desires that are naturally tending toward sin. Say no to your appetites for sin. We can't say no to our desires that are inerrantly inside of us in our own power, can we? We need God's grace to do it. So Thomas Brooks says, saving grace makes a man as willing to leave his sin as a slave is willing to leave his galley or a prisoner his dungeon or a beggar his rags. You wonder how you will ever go from saying yes to sin And just having an appetite for sin to saying no to it, God's grace will take you there. Just like God's grace will free you from your bondage, God's grace will take the taste away at some point. He'll do it. Grace trains us to say no in a number of ways. I just wrote down a few. So how does this grace of God actually teach us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? Well, first of all, by reminding us that sin always makes promises that it can't keep, and it always leads to death. That sin that's tempting you, promising you pleasure and joy or happiness or contentment, it's going to make promises that it can never keep. And it's always leading to death. Grace trains us to say no by keeping the cross of Jesus before our eyes so that when tempted with sin, we see what Jesus endured to rescue us from the wrath of God against that very sin. Grace trains us to say no by pointing us 
to the empty tomb of Christ where he buried our sin in the eternal sea of God's forgiveness and rose victorious over it to break its power to enslave us. Grace trains us to say no by showing us that God is faithful. In the middle of this temptation, God will make a way of escape so that we'll be able to endure. Grace trains us to say no to sin by assuring us 1 John 2, assuring us that if anyone does sin, and unfortunately I'm there a lot, aren't you? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous He is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. The grace of God trains us to say no to ungodliness. The grace of God trains us to do a second thing. Look there in verse 12, training us not only to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but to live, the second verb there. To live. To live how? Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Here and now in this present age, in between. So the grace of God trains Christians to live godly lives. Notice that this trio is living in relationship to self, to others, and to God. Did you notice that when you were reading this ahead of time? I know you read the text ahead of time. We, we all do that, right? So did you notice that the three things mentioned, self-controlled, upright is a, a relationship with others in community, and then godly lives in this present age between self, others, and God. So it says it trains us to live self-controlled lives. Are you beginning to recognize that Paul says, Titus, if there's one thing that's needed on Crete, it's Christians to do exactly what is not Cretan, but that is Christian, and it is to live in their right minds with their actions and their words controlled by something other than their evil gluttonous, lazy natures. Self-control. So it teaches us, grace teaches us to live in our sound mind. Grace teaches us, secondly, to live upright lives. The word upright is the word for righteous. So it teaches us to live in a way that is right and true. And then it teaches us to live in a way that is godly, just like the ungodliness a few words ago. These are actions that are worthy of God, that give worship to God. Now, have you tried 
to live your Christian life in the power of your flesh? I have. I have tried in my own self-determination and discipline to say no to all of the things that are ungodly and to say yes to all of the things that are godly. And it doesn't work. You know what we need? The grace of God. So the grace of God teaches us to say yes to all of the things that are worthy of God. How does it do that? Grace trains us to live godly lives by reminding us that it's not we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Grace trains us to live godly lives by reminding us that we have the spirit of Christ as our, quote, helper. That word helper is the one who comes alongside just like a personal life coach. Except you don't have to pay him and you don't have to make an appointment. He's with you all day, every day, and he can hear every thought and sense every attitude. And the Holy Spirit of God is there to teach us say yes to all of the things that represent Christ to others. Grace trains us to live godly lives by surrounding us in a new community of brothers and sisters who are the redeemed sinners just like me, who are on the same journey following the same Savior, recipients of the same grace. And grace says, you've got help in your brothers and sisters. You don't have to do this alone. And grace trains us to live godly lives by reminding us that even if we sin, Romans 8 is still true. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Grace reminds us that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. The grace of God that brings salvation trains Christians to renounce ungodliness, to live godly lives, and then number three, look at the text. While we are living godly lives in the here and now, daily having to say no to what our flesh wants to say yes to, living in the struggle and suffering against sin, we're waiting. We're waiting for something. We're waiting, verse 13, for our blessed hope. The second appearing, the appearing not of the grace, but of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace, in the midst of the struggle with the flesh, grace trains Christians to wait for the glory of God at the coming of Christ in the future. Waiting. I hate that word. I hate to wait. I am the worst waiter 
in the world. Do you hate to wait? Man, do I have it. I stink at waiting. Waiting. It's to live with an attitude and posture of expecting something. Waiting is looking forward to something. Waiting is living now in light of something in the future. You're never waiting on something that's in the past. That's already done. What you're waiting for is something in the future. And so right now, the way I feel, the way I think, knows that there's something in the future. And so I'm living and feeling and thinking in light of that thing in the future. So just like the period of engagement where a couple is waiting for their wedding day, which is set in the future, there's a lot of what? Work to be done. How much work? I asked my daughter and my son-in-law and my wife. There's a lot of work to be done while you're waiting. Waiting is not just twiddling your thumbs, sitting around doing nothing. Waiting involves activity while we're in expectation of that future. It's it's like a, a daughter who's about to inherit the family business when her parents retire. She's waiting for a future reality, but it has incredible implications for today because she doesn't just wait for it to happen. Right here and now, she is learning the business and coming up to speed so that she can take over and manage well. Christians are waiting for a future reality described as, what are the words? Verse 13, our blessed hope. Why do we say blessed instead of blessed? I don't know. But we're waiting for something described as a blessed or blessed hope. What is it? See if you can figure out from verse 13, what is our blessed hope? Naturally, it's what comes after the comma, right? The blessed hope isn't all the stuff we get in the future that are the blessings of God. The blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our blessed hope. That's what we're waiting for. The appearing of the glory of God in the person at the return of Jesus when he sets up his kingdom and when he comes again. History-defining, epic moment that really will happen. When he returns, then everything God has promised will come true. Everything. Eternal life in the presence of God again. Under the reign, the righteous reign of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. In his kingdom, which is described with the imagery of the Garden of Eden. Because he has abolished the curse of sin and death and will make all things new. Friends, that's our blessed or blessed hope that that will come at the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Christians live in light. 
Christians live now in light of that certain blessed hope. I close with this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter praises God for what he calls a living hope. It's, it's a hope that's not dormant and passive, but it's a hope that's alive. He's, he praises God for the living hope that we have of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept secure in heaven for us. A hope that causes us to rejoice here and now, even when we're suffering. A hope that gets us through the difficulties of life because we know that even the suffering will cause us to be purified for the day, the revelation of Jesus Christ, when Jesus is appeared. And Peter says this in verse 13. Get this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It all starts with grace. It all ends with grace. Everything in between is grace. The grace that brings salvation is the same grace that trains us to say no, trains us to say yes, and trains us to wait expectantly, knowing that God works to all things together for our good to conform us to the image of Christ here and now so that when Jesus comes back, he will have millions of brothers and sisters who are made in his image. The past appearance of God's grace, the future appearance of God's glory, and the present life in between, marked by godliness and good works. Friends, may God give us the grace to live in between these two history-defining realities. Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you for the hope that we have here. Thank you that you have not left us alone in our sin and condemnation, but thank you that your grace appeared in Christ and it will save all who will turn away from sin and death to him. I pray that you would do that among us. And then that same grace works with us patiently. Training us to say no and yes and wait. God, you've got your hands full just with me. But I want to thank you that your grace is more abundant than any of our proclivity toward failure and sin. Thank you that you will finish what you started. 
thank you that we have a blessed hope that your glory will finish all of this and Jesus will be King of kings and Lord of lords sitting on his throne in the new heavens and new earth. And I pray that you would, by your grace, make sure that every one of us are there. We depend on you for that. We thank you in his name. Amen.